Let's, let's pray. Father, as we come before your word, I pray that you would give us the ability to bow low before your holy words, to receive them into our hearts and to be transformed by them. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Today's sermon, the fourth of the neglected doctrines sermon uh, for now, and then we'll, Lord willing, pick up with Genesis in June. Uh, today's sermon is titled, The Doctrine of Hell. There's a verse in Romans chapter 11 that instructs us to contemplate both the kindness and the severity of God. It's in Romans 11:22. Uh, next week, next week, Brother Dane is is planning to speak on God's kindness and how His kindness transforms our lives. And I'm and I'm very happy that you're going to have the opportunity to, to hear him address that wonderful subject. But today, today we are contemplating the severity of God, and this is a tough topic for nice, sentimental people like 21st century Americans. Though many people throughout the world face numerous afflictions and dangers, we Americans are often quite comfortable in a materialistic, sentimental, therapeutic, entertainment-dominated way of life. It's so easy to be spiritually numb when the body is inundated with pleasure. Over and against this spread of comfort, the challenge of recent years, COVID, inflation, sharp political bitterness, increasing moral collapse, frequent acts of violence, the, these, uh, these things are actually good for us. Because being comfortable in God ignoring comfort gives us a false sense of security. And so what we so often need are bracing calls to recognize our desperate condition that we might seek after the Lord with all our heart. Eternal realities are good medicine for dull hearts. Every day, in fact, you can turn to Romans 2 before we get to Matthew, uh, Every day, every human being in this present world is progressing toward one of two possible outcomes in the future world. The Apostle Paul captures this thought in Romans chapter 2, verses 5 to 10. In this passage, Paul begins by telling unrepentant sinners that they are on a collision course with the judgment of God, and then he sets forth the consistent biblical teaching that the righteous are heading toward one destination, whereas the unrighteous are heading toward a very different destination. It says in Romans chapter 2, verses 5 to 10, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, 
but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the, the Greek. There, there are only, only two paths in which to walk, and these two paths lead to two very different ends. Now, there is no human being on the face of the earth who naturally does good and who naturally seeks for glory, honor, and immortality in a God-pleasing way. Paul makes that clear enough in Romans chapter 3. However, those who are rescued from sin by God's mercy and are transformed by God's grace do actually become the kind of people who do good and seek after glory, honor, and immortality, as we're told in Romans 6.22. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. And so those who are advancing along the path of sanctification are, however imperfectly, are truly doing good and truly seeking after glory, and their destination is eternal life. But by contrast, those who remain stuck in sin and continue to be self-centered and disobedient, their destination is wrath and fury, tribulation and distress. And that distressing destination is the topic of today's sermon. The doctrine of hell is an unpleasant and weighty doctrine. Something may be wrong with us if we love to talk about it, and something may be wrong with us if we refuse to talk about it. Jesus didn't tell us to take extreme measures to uproot lust from our hearts in order that it might improve our marriage, though it certainly does. But Jesus told us to take extreme measures to uproot lust from our hearts in order to avoid going to hell. That's in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 to 29. We need to learn to esteem all of God's words, all of God's warnings, and all of God's instructions. Before we get to the nature of punishment in hell, we need to start with the Bible's teaching about the final judgment. Over and over again, the, the Bible teaches that every human being will stand before God on a day of judgment. The final judgment will take place as the concluding event of this present age, and that concluding event will be the segue into the eternal age. The book of Ecclesiastes teaches that although life in this present world is often very vexing and frustrating, when you see it through the narrow lens of the here and now, we need to widen our scope and see our present actions in light of eternity. The book of Ecclesiastes concludes this way, the end of the matter all has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. The New Testament frequently points to this future judgment in a variety of ways. Paul seems to echo Ecclesiastes 12.14 in 2 Corinthians 5.10 when he says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. In Romans 14, verses 10 to 12, Paul wrote, For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. 
so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. It can be difficult enough for a man to give an account of himself to another human being. How will we manage to give an account of ourselves to the Holy One before whom nothing is hidden? One aspect, this is, this is sometimes uh, forgotten, but one aspect of faithful gospel preaching is impressing upon people that a great day of judgment is coming. When Peter preached the gospel to Cornelius and to the people that were gathered in Cornelius' house in Acts chapter 10, uh, Peter not only proclaimed the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, he also proclaimed Jesus' role as the judge of all. Uh, Peter said, and he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Similarly, when the Apostle Paul preached in Athens, he urged repentance in view of the coming judgment. He said in Acts 17, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Sometimes when we think about salvation, we focus almost exclusively on the present benefits of walking with God today. And as important as these present benefits are, it's also important to remember that the gospel is directly related to the final judgment. God will judge the world, including you. God will judge the world in righteousness, and that judgment will go badly for you if you enter God's courtroom without the gracious protection of Jesus. God's wrath is coming upon the disobedient, and the only way to be spared God's wrath is to take refuge in Jesus. It says in 1 Thessalonians 1.10, Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come. It's a future aspect of salvation. Likewise, in Romans 5, Paul writes regarding those who trust in Jesus, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. And so when we talk about salvation, the very terminology of salvation implies that we are being saved from something. What are we being saved from? Well, we're, we're being saved not only from sin and death, but also from the wrath of God. God himself will pour out wrath, fury, tribulation, and distress on the unrighteous on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed. We must tell people about this coming day. When, when Paul evangelized Felix in Acts chapter 24, Paul did not sweet-talk Felix with ideas about becoming a person of destiny. Paul was much more focused than that. It says in Acts 24, verses 24 and 25, After some days Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. We're, we're, we're not slick marketing agents 
We're not making a sales pitch. Instead, we are ambassadors of Christ who are authorized to declare the righteousness of God, the sinfulness of mankind, the coming judgment when the righteous one will justly and thoroughly evaluate every human being and that the only way to escape condemnation is to trust in Jesus. Jesus is God's one and only provision for sinful human beings who are on a collision course with God's holy justice. Turn away from the sin that will ruin you and trust in the spotless and slaughtered lamb who died for the sins of his people. He will wash you, sanctify you, justify you, and transform you, and he will shelter you on the day of judgment. He will save you from the wrath to come. He will be your shepherd forever, we're told in Revelation chapter 7, and he will guide you to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from your eyes. The alternative to this eternal shelter and unending joy in the presence of the Lord is absolutely horrific. The doctrine of hell is an unpleasant and severe doctrine, unpleasant and severe, but true. For those who don't take refuge in Jesus, they will meet a bitter end that never ends. Now, if you could turn to Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, I want to call your attention to several passages that together give us a full picture of the destiny of the wicked. And keep in mind that the, the, as we go along here, the, the doctrine of eternal punishment in hell is not based on a single passage, but is derived from the cumulative and overlapping meaning of several passages. Keep that in mind as we kind of walk through Matthew here. First, let's orient ourselves to the, the seriousness of the matter. Jesus doesn't waste any time in getting to urgent matters. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 26, which is part of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus didn't advise us to rid ourselves of anger because doing so will enhance our wonderful life here on earth, though it will. It will make life better now. But far more seriously, Jesus warned us to resist anger and repair broken relationships in order to forestall indefinite misery in the future. It says Jesus said, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. In this passage, Jesus refers to the hell of fire, and it is connected to judgment, and the moral weightiness of Jesus' instruction is underscored by the fact that the alternative to walking in peace toward others is imprisonment. How does someone in prison get to the point of paying the last penny? The same question is raised, you don't have to turn there, but the same question is raised in the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew chapter 18. 
the, this, this servant was forgiven a massive debt equivalent to about 200,000 years wages for an ordinary laborer. But a- after he was forgiven and he refused to forgive his fellow servant who owed him a mere pittance by comparison, that first servant's forgiveness was revoked and he was delivered to the jailers until he should pay all his debt, Matthew 18.34. How does someone in jail pay all his debt when his debt is worth 200,000 years of wages? You're not supposed to pull out your calculator and start crunching numbers. Instead, you're supposed to conclude that this is a debt that you'll never pay off, and therefore you will never be released. So Matthew 5, 21 to 26 highlights the seriousness of the matter and begins to point in a certain direction. Now go to Matthew chapter 7, and I'm going to read verses 21 to 23 in a moment. This passage occurs near the end of the Sermon on the Mount. In this sermon, Jesus makes it clear that we must become the kind of people who hear his words and do them. True security, like building your house on the rock, is found in building your life on Jesus, trusting Jesus and obeying his words. By contrast, failure to obey Jesus has catastrophic consequences. Back in Matthew 5.20, Jesus taught that people who don't get transformed from the inside out will not enter the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you... this. I know I'm backing up to 520, but for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You see, the scribes and Pharisees had a reputation for righteousness, but it was an external righteousness. Jesus blasted the scribes and Pharisees later in in Matthew 23. He said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So Jesus demands a superior righteousness, an internal righteousness, a righteousness that flows from the inner man, a new heart that is aligned with God's words, which nicely summarizes the last three sermons. Getting a new heart that rightly aligns with God's words. Religion, religious devotion, religious activity, religious leadership, pious claptrap, spirituality bargain, uh, jargon, spirituality jargon. Some people do approach it like a bargain. Um, and uh, impressive ministry displays are often the expression of external, pharisaical righteousness. Tragically and stunningly, many, many choose Christian religion and Christian ministry instead of Christ and his words. So, Matthew 7, 21 to 23, Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Not just a handful, not just some here or there, but many people operate under the banners of Christianity and Christian ministry who are actually workers of lawlessness who do not obey the will of the Father. 
They're not savingly united to Jesus. They don't know him, and he doesn't know them. I mean, he, knows, he knows of them, but he doesn't know them. He doesn't recognize them as being one of his redeemed people. On that day, a clear punishment is decreed. Depart from me. The fundamental nature of hell is to be completely cut off from the gracious presence of God. This is an absolute tragedy. Human beings were created in the image of God. They were created to know God, walk in fellowship with Him, and represent Him faithfully. God is the fount of every blessing, the source of everything that is truly good, the spring of all true beauty and wonder and love. To know Him is eternal life. To be near Him is your highest good, especially when you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death. To be separated from Him means anguish and misery, which takes us to Matthew chapter 8, one chapter over. I'm going to read verses 11 and 12 in a minute. The context for this passage is that a centurion, a non-Jew, demonstrates great faith in Jesus, whereas Israelites often lacked such faith. In other words, the presumed outsider has saving faith, but the presumed insiders often lack such faith. In that context, Jesus says in Matthew 8, 11, and 12, I tell you, many will come from east and west, that's the presumed outsiders, the Gentiles, Many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. While the sons of the kingdom, the presumed insiders, the Jews, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The phrase outer darkness is terrifying. Light is essential for life, for seeing and moving safely and relating to others and not to stumble. To be thrown into the outer darkness is to be consigned to the void in which you cannot see. No beauty, no stability, no relational harmony, no ability to see the face of the Lord, no ability to be comforted by the smile of a dear friend. Utterly lost, no one to help. The only thing that you can do in the great void of absolute darkness is to contemplate how miserable you are. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The man in hell will have to live with himself and his own wicked heart forever. He won't be able to escape his self-enclosed misery and will be shot through with regret, sorrow, pain, and anger. There is no door through which he might go to find help. All he can do is grind his own teeth. The man in hell has to suffer the logical outworking of his rejection of the two greatest commandments. The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. The man in heaven is wonderfully free to enjoy the Lord and enjoy others without hindrance. The man in hell is required to endure the agony of his own self-absorbed world without end. He spent his life rejecting God, now God rejects him. He spent his life putting himself first at the expense of others, now he has to bear the burden of eternity alone. Turn to Matthew 25. Matthew 25, verses 31 to 46. Here, Jesus describes the final judgment 
in which all people are gathered before him, and he separates the righteous from the unrighteous, represented as sheep and goats. The sheep represent those who love Jesus and demonstrate that love by caring for other sheep, especially for the weak and suffering and needy and persecuted sheep. The goats represent those who, who don't love Jesus and who demonstrate it by not caring for Jesus' weak and suffering people. The sheep are blessed forever and welcomed into the everlasting kingdom, but the goats are cursed forever. The king will say to the goats, the unrighteous, there in Matthew 25, verse 41, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Then Jesus comments in verse 46, And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Once again, there are the terrifying words, Depart from me. Back in Matthew 5, Jesus had spoken of the hell of fire. Now he uses the phrase eternal fire and eternal punishment. When the righteous enter into eternal life, they enter into a life that will never end. When the unrighteous go away into eternal punishment, they enter a punishment that will never end. The eternality of this punishment is also emphasized in Mark chapter 9. You can turn there a little bit to the right. Uh, Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 42. Mark 9.42 says, and following, says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. The eternal fire is unquenchable fire. The point of saying that the fire is unquenchable is not to make an abstract observation about the fire never ending. The point, rather, is to convey an urgent warning about the eternality of suffering in the fire. That's the point. That's the emphasis. The fire doesn't stop burning because what's in the fire keeps burning. Their worm does not die. And the fire is not quenched means that their suffering does not end. Now, at this point, I want to pause and make a very important observation about these passages that we've just looked at. Every passage that we just read is from the lips of Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed. God could have revealed focused instruction about hell through any of the prophets or apostles if He had wanted to. But instead, He made it known through His Son. I think this is very important. The subject matter is so heavy, so distressing, and so intense that we needed to hear it directly from the Lord who came to us in the form of a lowly servant. The doctrine of hell did not originate on the lips of angry preachers who want to coerce people into 
reforming their conduct. Jesus loved people with such a love as has never been expressed in all the world. Jesus was often moved with compassion at the plight of those around him. Jesus chose very ordinary men to be his disciples, and he endured their impatience and washed their feet. Jesus forgave sinners and cleansed the unclean and delivered the oppressed. Jesus loved the rich man who walked away from him in unbelief. Jesus wept at the tomb of Lazarus and he wept over the city of Jerusalem that was about to be destroyed because of its unbelief. Jesus presented himself as a sacrifice for sin. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And calling them friends, that was the statement Jesus said, calling them friends is itself an act of remarkable grace for before they were his friends they were his enemies for if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son much more now that we are reconciled reconciled shall we be saved by his life Romans 5:10. on the cross Jesus went into the outer darkness for us so that we could be reconciled to God and have the light of life forever so since the subject matter of hell is so heavy, so distressing, and so intense, we needed to hear it from the Lamb who exudes mercy. We needed to hear it from the one who calls out to a weary world, come to me and I will give you rest. And yet, it is not compassionate, gracious, and loving to lie to people. If you have a hard time understanding how being gracious to people and speaking truth to people go hand in hand, remember that telling the truth is a form of love. Paul Paul said in Romans 13.10, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law, bearing false witness, tickling people's ears, proclaiming peace when there is no peace, adapting your message to what people want to hear that will often be regarded as loving by people who don't love the truth, but it's not loving. It's not loving to tell people that there is no hell if there is a hell and multitudes are heading there. It is not loving to not tell people about the final judgment if there is a final judgment and multitudes are unprepared for it. It's not loving to tell people that they can go on sinning without, without consequence if unchecked sinning leads to infinite loss. Jesus told us the truth. Jesus tells us the truth about the horrors of hell because he doesn't want us to go there. Jesus tells you the truth about the horrors of hell because he doesn't want you to go there. The multitudes are racing like sheep without a shepherd to everlasting and Jesus came to rescue them. At the same time, I have to tell you, our understanding of Jesus is incomplete if we only view him as a meek-like lamb and merciful savior. As we've seen, he... He gives stern warnings about sin and judgment in hell. And in Revelation chapter 6, everyone on earth wants to hide from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Revelation 6, 16. Take refuge in the grace of the Lamb now or you will face the wrath of the Lamb then. He is, after all, the one 
through whom God will judge the world in righteousness. Jesus, our Adonai, our priest king, the priest king of Psalm 110, he will fulfill all of Psalm 110, including verses 5 and 6. Adonai will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. That's our Jesus. Perhaps the most sobering passage in the entire Bible about the eternal punishment of the wicked is found in Revelation chapter 14, verses 9 through 11, which says, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. We cannot fathom the reality of eternal conscious misery. It is wise to let our words be few and to consider words like this from a 19th century hymn. Beyond this veil of tears there is a life above unmeasured by the flight of years and all that life is love. There is a death whose pang outlasts the fleeting breath. Oh, what eternal horrors hang around the second death. Lord God of truth and grace, teach us that death to shun, lest we be banished from thy face and evermore undone. I'd like to make three applications of the doctrine of hell. First, life on earth is utterly serious. Life is short. Your life is like a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. And yet, what you do in the little time that you have has eternal consequences. Perhaps even the pagans perceive it a little bit when they make a statement like, what we do in life echoes in eternity. That is truer than you can possibly imagine. You are either trusting in Jesus and walking with Him and being ripened for everlasting glory or you are going your own way and being ripened for everlasting shame. You're either, you're either storing up treasure in heaven or you're storing up wrath for the day of wrath. You're either becoming more like Jesus in preparation for spending eternity with Him or you're becoming more like the devil in preparation for being banished from the Savior's presence. You're either growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, or you're shrinking back and diminishing and in danger of forfeiting your soul. Life is serious. Second application. Jesus did not give an academic lecture on hell. He, he pressed home the reality of hell in the context of exhortations to people like you and me to be faithful and to make war against sin. And so we should hear Jesus' exhortations in the way that he intended for them to be heard. 
fear of hell by itself will not awaken faithful service and holy zeal. But the reality of hell should awaken us to the horror of sin. The horror of impurity. The horror of unfaithfulness. The horror of lovelessness. The horror of being cold toward God. The rising of sin in my heart is so bad that if left unchecked and allowed to get the upper hand and govern my life, it would land me in the lake of fire. Therefore, let Jesus' teaching awaken you to the horror of, of your sin. Learn to hate your sin and learn to love Jesus who died and rose again so that you would be forgiven of your sin. Learn to hate your sin and learn to welcome the Holy Spirit who strengthens us in the battle against sin. Learn to hate your sin and learn to cling to God's words and believe His promises and follow His instructions. Learn to hate your sin and learn to be merciful to other people. Blessed are the merciful for they shall obtain mercy. Other people are not your problem. You are your problem. Other people's sins will not ruin you. Your sins will ruin you. Be tough on your own sin and be tender-hearted toward your fellow sinners. And find some fellow sinners who also hate their sin and become allies together in the battle against sin. Don't take Jesus' teaching on hell and turn it into a banner that you wave in front of the world unless you yourself have become a good student of his teaching. No one who is hateful and no one who relishes the thought of other people going to hell should say anything about hell. Such people should go and learn what this means. God desires mercy, not your cold and clinical formulations about hell. Third application. After you have taken this doctrine to heart, it must motivate evangelism. The doctrine of the final judgment and the doctrine of hell are part of the necessary context for evangelism, for preaching the gospel to lost people. We, we want people to be saved from eternal ruin. We want people to flee from the wrath to come. The Lord does not delight in the death of the wicked, Ezekiel 18.32, so neither should we. The Lord desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth, 1 Timothy 2.4, and so should we. Deep down, what we really want for people is not that they would live a comfortable earthly life, what we really want for people is that they know Christ and have a title to heaven and they're learning to serve him with joy and gladness. The great 18th century preacher John Wesley wrote, I desire to have both heaven and hell ever in my eye while I stand on this small island of life between two boundless oceans. The comfortable church of the 21st century needs to rediscover the clarifying doctrines of heaven and hell. Our message is not live your best life now with a little bit of Jesus thrown in. Our message is 
be all in for Jesus now and look forward to the life of the world to come. The Apostle Paul was a careful and precise theologian. But he was also a man who knew how to weep and pray. There is too much self-indulgence and not enough weeping and praying these days. And if I'm talking to anyone, I'm talking to me. But listen to Paul, the man who discovered the astonishing grace of Jesus and the heart that he had toward his fellow Israelites who were lost. He said, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. That's remarkable. The gospel of Jesus is the message that Jesus was accursed and cut off on the cross for our sake, for our salvation. Paul was so transformed by the self-sacrificing love of Jesus that Paul had a gospel-generated inclination to be accursed and cut off for the sake of his fellow Israelites who were spiritually lost, that they might be saved. And so with, with, with heaven and hell in clear view, that heart of self-sacrificing love is the heart that we must have. And that heart of self-sacrificing self love is the heart that the Lord uses to reach people for Christ. Does anyone feel convicted about your need to get that kind of heart? The British missionary of about a century ago, C.T. Studd, said this, some want to live within the sound of church or chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would blow up our indulgent and self-absorbed tendencies and that you would cause us to be walking in close fellowship with Jesus to find those that he came to save. In his name we pray. Amen.